Amen. Good morning. Uh, my name is Elliot. I'm the pastor here. It's a joy to have you with us. Um, new uh, college students in the house, uh, people visiting, people um, wanting to check this thing out called church, explore who this man named Jesus might be and uh, what his people might be like. We're glad you're with us. Um, if you are new here, uh, big news of today, of the week, is that I got a haircut this week. Um, you could probably tell, because um, it looks great. But uh, I, here, here's what you need to know is uh, it comes with another m- possible news announcement to you is that my wife is pregnant with our fifth baby. Um, we're not clapping for that. Uh, we're not... We're not quite there yet. Um, but uh, I needed to remove all places in my life where I could cut some like time and responsibility. So that was the haircut. That was the reason for it. I have to save even just 45 seconds in the morning. Uh, so anyway, um, that's not what the sermon's about today, but I thought you were interested in my personal life. Um, <laughs> We are journeying through the book of Acts this fall. We are on week two. Last week we kicked it off. Uh, Acts is quite the book. Uh, Brief intro, uh, just kind of overview as we walk through this that we'll try to remind you each week as we're in and out. of this book is that Acts is actually a sequel. Acts is part two of a two-part story written by the same author, Luke, who wrote the gospel according to Luke, decided to write a two-parter. He set out to write a two-parter and he wrote this two-parter, Luke-Acts. Some people consider it one book. Um, Luke-Acts as one story told in two parts. Uh, he set out to write this account of Jesus and the church and he did it for his friend Theophilus. No one knows who Theophilus was, but he was a dear friend of Luke. And Luke sets out at the beginning of the book of Luke and says, Theophilus, I'm going to write for you a very well-researched, a very well-articulated, a very well-investigated account of Jesus and his church so that, Theophilus, you might be convinced that Jesus is who he says he was, that you might be convinced that Jesus is real, that you might be convinced that Jesus really is the second member of the Trinity and really is the Savior of the world. And so he wrote that for Theophilus, and now we kind of get to peer into that. We kind of get to pull back the curtain like we're encountering this account written for one person but we get to hopefully encounter the same experience which is this is that as we read the account of part two in this account of Jesus's church in the world that we would be more convinced or maybe convinced for the first time that Jesus really is who he says he was that Jesus and his church really are who they say they are so We're studying Acts. Uh, We're picking up part two right as part two begins. We looked at last week as Jesus sends the church out into his mission. We said last week that the church is to be the continuation of Jesus in the world, that the book of Acts used to be referred to as the continued acts of Jesus, but it was just done through the Holy Spirit in the life of the church. And so the life of the church and how it's beginning to blossom, how it's beginning to flourish, how it's beginning to take shape uh, from its earliest days, that's the story that we're following all fall. So we are in a very short but very power-packed, really a notorious passage uh, this morning. We're going to be in Acts chapter 2. Every church planter in the history of the church has preached on this section of, of Acts chapter 2. It's a, it's a description of the earliest church, the first church in Jerusalem. Starting in verse 42, says this, says, and they, this is the early church, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers. 
and awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. It's the word of the Lord. Amen. Okay. So last week we started this journey of Acts and we started looking at this reality that, the, that Jesus, the ascended Jesus, calls the church into his mission to continue his works in the world, to take his heart to the ends of the earth. And then he empowers that first church at Pentecost where the Holy Spirit descends and indwells in the early church. And he says, not only have I called you into my mission, I've empowered you for that mission. I'm gonna take my heart, I'm gonna put it in you. And then I want you church to go to the ends of the earth with my ministry, with my ministry of reconciliation with my love for the world. So that's the church as it begins. It would be easy to believe, it'd be easy to read that, even if you stopped after Pentecost where the Holy Spirit comes and indwells in the people, that, oh, that was a great spiritual high, spiritual mountaintop for all the people involved. And you would be right, it was. But for the early church to respond to this invitation of Jesus, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, didn't mean it stopped with, man, wasn't Pentecost a great day and that spiritual high we had? Let's remember that and sing Kumbaya about that day and let's remember the spiritual mountaintop that we all experienced on that day. It'd be easy to believe that, oh, these individual people thousands of years ago had an individual experience and they stayed in that individualism that said, oh, I got the Holy Spirit in me and then I was able to speak in tongues and wasn't that a great spiritual moment? So the Holy Spirit is never meant to be enjoyed in isolation. To be brought into the life of the Spirit, to be brought into the call of Jesus, to join his bride, to join his body, is by definition to be brought into community. The New Testament, no less than the Old Testament, but the New Testament, the people of God knows nothing of solitary religion. Now, it is important for you to have an individual realization, an individual moment where, and even if you don't know the exact day and time moment, that you as an individual will be able to say, as an individual, I believe in Jesus and his forgiveness of me and his covering of me. I believe that I belong to him. It is important Personal faith is necessary. But the act of God in saving people immediately sets those people into a community, into a body. This is Paul in Romans chapter 12. This is Paul in 1 Corinthians 12, where he talks about the church, local church, being a body with many parts. And no finger exists in isolation. No nose exists in isolation. No shoulder exists in isolation. They're all part of something bigger. Pentecost birthed the community not a collection of persons claiming an individual spiritual experience. That's the point of this little section of Acts chapter two. It wasn't all these individuals going off and doing their own thing. They were coming together in the power of the spirit to be something bigger than themselves. And listen to this description, this earliest gathering of the church. Look at what community that, this, that it was produced to them. I want to reread for you verse 43 through 47. This is the description of the kind of community that the earliest church was. Listen to this. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. 
And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Okay, just want to like spitball a few of these for a moment, for a second. Everyone had all, they were all together. It says that word together three or four times. They had all things in common. They were giving to anyone in need. They were gathering in homes. They were gathering in the temple. They were gathering in the community with glad and generous hearts. That's just a brief kind of quick hit of what we just read. I want to paint this picture, though, because we can read those four or five verses really quickly and think, oh, that was great for them. That was nice. Then what, what happened next? We need to stop for a moment because Luke includes these four or five verses for us to get a picture of what the church was intended to be. First, I want to look at who it was that was coming together. If you remember from last week, the festival of Pentecost, the Jewish festival of Pentecost, it was a massive Jewish festival. It was one of the big three annual festivals of the Jewish people. Hundreds of thousands of Jews would have been gathered in Jerusalem when the Spirit descended and the first church began. And these Jews in Jerusalem were from all over the world. Earlier in chapter two, it literally says Jews from every nation under heaven. Now that's a hyperbole a little bit. It just means they were from everywhere. There was an incredible amount of diversity. Here's the, the names of the countries and the peoples and the ethnicities and the cultures that were represented in Acts 2. Jews, Gentiles, Parthians, Egyptians, Libyans, Arabs, Cretans, Romans. Everybody who's descended on Jerusalem for this Pentecost festival that then hears the gospel message preached and comes to faith in the Messiah, Jesus, then forms this early church and they were from all different cultures. And now people from all different cultures we're now coming together to be a part of something bigger than themselves. In spite of their cultural differences, in spite of their language differences, they were being something together. They were giving themselves away to create something bigger than themselves. They were crossing literally every barrier possible. They didn't see the world the same way. They didn't see money the same way. They didn't see politics the same way. They didn't even see themselves the same way. They came from different cultures from all over the world. And yet, they all came together to make something happen. Something was happening to them that was crossing all those barriers. You know that's happening here. Now, it may not look like it in this you know, seemingly monolithic room, but I promise you the diversity in here is incredible that we have people who have literally told me at, the, at, at this church, like we have people who across the coffee table have said, I think I'm way too liberal to go to this church. And then in the same week, I've heard people literally say, I think I'm way too conservative to go to this church. Like we have people that, we have people who can't make rent this month and we have people who could pay rent for everybody this month. We have people who see the world way differently. We have people who come from all different walks of life, people who were, who were Christians since they were fetuses and people who became Christians two weeks ago. Like we have people who have totally different experiences coming together in this room. And I'm not saying, look at how great we're doing. I'm saying, look at what is possible in the spirit. Look at what is possible for the spirit to create. And you may say, well, yeah, but these early gatherings, this early gathering in Acts 2, they were all, at least they were all Jews coming together from around the the Roman Empire. But if you fast forward the story of Acts, by the time you get to Acts chapter 13, you see people coming from all different walks of life, from all different religions. The polytheism of Rome is all being converted into this Christian movement. And they're all coming together, all being together, and they're all radically different. This is astonishing. This is just as astonishing then as it would be now. Suddenly you have people that have every right to be divided that see things way differently 
And suddenly they're acting like those barriers aren't meaningful anymore. They're putting those barriers away and saying, there's no other reason why we should be in the same room together. There's no other reason that we should actually have community together. We're actually putting those differences aside because we found something deeper than the thing that used to divide us. People who otherwise would not be in the same room and not just like one time at a Dave Chappelle show. Like that, that brings a bunch of people differently together, but this is like sustained. That's like, this is like every week for like a lifetime for a season that everybody wants to continue being together because they found something deeper than the thing that used to divide them. That's what's happening in the early church. It says in this passage that those people from all different walks of life, from ages and genders and views on things are all coming together, putting down their barriers. And then it says three different times they were together. They were together. They were together. They couldn't stop being together, which is no easier of a softball toss of a plug to say, if you're not in one of our small groups, you absolutely should be. Because one of the things, one of the marks of being the early church, one of the marks of being the church is that you actually spend way more than just an hour together on Sundays with people. (laughs) That you actually do life with them. That you actually know what's going on in their lives. That you're actually growing and maturing and exploring who Jesus is together. That you're helping carry each other's burdens. That you're knowing what's going on in people's lives. You're together, you're in homes, you're in living rooms, you're on porches, you're in backyards. That you are together with people. Now I'm not saying you have to sign up for a Midtown branded small group. I think you should, but if you've got that elsewhere, great. But the idea that you could exist in isolation and the idea that you could exist thinking and talking and ruminating on who Jesus is for one hour a week means you're insane. If you think that that's possible, you've got to be surrounded, you've got to be together, 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 together with other believers. And one of the marks of being a part of this beautiful mystery called the body of Christ is that you would actually seek to be together with people that may be different than you. Like maybe in different walks of life, they may see the world differently than you. They may have different political views than you. They may have different economic views than you. And you would say, you actually want to learn from people like that that are different than me. I want to be surrounded by people who are different than me. And I want to join in our unitedness to Jesus together that we might grow in him together. And then look at what these together people were doing for each other. Look at verse 45. Will, you can throw this up there. This is insane. This is insane. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Essentially what Luke just told you is that these people's material possessions, their bank accounts, became secondary in light of something else. This is a community where the spiritual reality and the spiritual well-being and the caring for one another came to override the people's desire for comfort, financial security, and more material joy. They decided what's most important is that we take care of each other, not can I add a zero to my savings account. They decided, I actually want to make sure that Sally and Susie and Johnny and Jimmy, that they all have what they, those probably weren't their Jewish names, but that they probably, like that they, that they have what they need, that their needs are actually more important than me getting, make, climbing the ladder of my financial success is more important. Now, owning materials, owning things is not bad. You know how I know that? Because in the passage, it says they continue to meet in people's homes. People still owned homes. People still owned possessions. 
But what happened, what took place was the things that people owned, they loosened their grip on those things. I don't have to have this. This is not what's most important. My material possessions, my financial security took a back seat to taking care of the people around me. And so the question for us is, is where do money and material possessions fall in your allegiances? Are they primary or secondary for you? What is most important to you? Because for the early church, they took a back seat. Now, I have to clear this up. This is not like literal communism. Okay, this is not like everyone load their money into one central thing and then have a board decide on who gets what and they get to disperse what they want. That's not what's happening. But it was very close to spiritual communalism. Like, we're doing this thing together and it's okay if I have more than you or you have more than me, but no one's gonna be in need. If you can't pay your grocery bill or your medical bill, or you can't actually find sitters to watch your children, like we're going to make sure whether that's giving away of my money or giving away of my time or giving away of my emotions, I'm going to make you the priority, not me and my comfort. That's what was happening. They gave their stuff away as any had need. Can you imagine being a place where people actually feel like my church is a place, my local body is a place where I feel comfortable bringing my needs I'm not afraid of having needs in this body because guess what I know is going to happen? I'm going to actually have my needs met, which means it produces a community where not only people are thrilled to meet other people's needs, people are okay bringing their own, which means one day you might have a need. You might not have a financial need. You might have an emotional need. You might have a medical need. You might have a need and you would go, man, my church is the kind of place that welcomes needs. (laughs) It's okay to be needy in my church. It's okay to be needy with my community because my community is not afraid of neediness. So people from all different backgrounds, all different cultures, all different ages, stages, worldviews, politics, all different, all different walks of life, then start giving away their things to each other so that no one was left in need. It's starting to sound like utopia. Like, how is this possible? How is, th- there's no way this could actually be real. Of course, it only lasted for four verses because it couldn't have lasted for four months, right? Like, it couldn't, it couldn't have been this way. But then it gets better. This, this, I read this, I've, I've preached on this passage before. Things always tend to stick out afresh when you're preaching on it again, but this, is may, this was maybe my favorite piece of the description of the early church that caught me for the first time this week. Look at verse 47. It's describing the church. Verse 47 says this, praising God and having favor with all the people. So I started studying this and realizing, oh, when Luke's saying that the early church had favor with all the people, it's not just talking about inside the walls of the church. They had favor with all the people. The church's reputation with outsiders is what Luke is noting for us here. It was a big piece of what Luke wanted us to know about the early church. Let me, let me make this really clear what Luke is saying about the early church. And it's very true for the modern church as well too. The church is not a place for a bunch of jerks. There is not a re- there's not a good reason scripturally that the outsider should ever hate you for your sake. Now, Jesus says, yeah, the world will hate you and persecute you for my sake. That's great. Let them hate you for him. Don't let them hate you for you. You are not meant to be a jerk. I, if I was not preaching, I would use other language. Like you, 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 that is, that is not, not ever allowable inside the walls of the church as we face the outside walls of the church. The, the outside world may hate you, but you should never give them any legitimate reason to do so. Like you should be a good tipper at restaurants. 
You should be a good neighbor. You should not complain on customer service phone calls. You should not be antagonistic online. You shouldn't be. You should treat your employees well. You, shouldn't treat, you, you should treat your employer well. The early church knew that it's important to not give the outside world any legitimate reason to hate them. Jesus already told you in Matthew chapter five and six, the world is going to hate you for me. Great, let them hate Jesus. Do not ever let them hate you for your sake. This also means that whatever it means for Jesus and the church to be against culture in some ways, that phrase can get thrown around someone, no one really knows what it means. I know this, it should never mean that Christians should be against culture in a way that would give the world a reason to hate them back. That's not what it means. That's not what the early church was doing. It means that the church has got to learn, it, ha- it, is, it is paramount that the church learn how to hold truth and grace together and not lose either one of them. We are not just a people of the truth. We are a people of truth and grace. And we're a people of grace and truth. But the, the church has got to learn how to be a people that is that way. So much so, this is what Acts chapter 2, 47 is saying. So much so that the, they had favor with all the people in Jerusalem, all the outsiders, people who weren't even joining the church had favor with, with the church. They loved the church. They loved that the church was around. They loved that the church was, was what it was. They loved, even if they weren't joining it. And here's what it means. That the church, that Christians that have local body should be so wonderful to the surrounding community that if that church, if those Christians left that community, the community would be sad that they left. I've often wondered if in God's divine providence that I would not be okay with, but if God, in God's divine providence, he ever got rid of this building for us to gather in and we had to move somewhere else, would this neighborhood be sad? Would this neighborhood be sad that this church is no longer here? Or would they go like, golly, I'm so glad. Like it is finally because those people are annoying. Those people are more annoying than the like animal proselytizers out here in front of Frothy. Like, <laughs> I don't even know. I can't, I can't do it anymore. I'm so done. I don't have favor with them because I have not. I just walk on by. Uh, would the people of this neighborhood feel like this neighborhood is better because we're in it? Not because we've been out there converting everybody. This doesn't say that everyone got converted, but they have favor with all the people. That means people on the outside of the church said, you know, I don't even believe what you believe. I don't even agree with your stance on life. I don't agree with your stance on spirituality. I don't agree with you, but I'm so glad you're here because you make this place better. I actually want you to be around. They had favor with all the people, even the non-converts, one of them around. They had favor with all the people because of how they were treating the outsider. They weren't judging and condemning the outsider. They weren't proselytizing every time they saw them. They weren't getting in fights and arguments. They were loving the outside world so well that they had favor with all the people. And the early church continued to be this way. History would tell us this. They continued to be this way and to be this beautiful. A pagan emperor in the fourth century, Julian, recognized the early church's beauty. He wrote a a letter to one of his pagan priests for a Roman deity. And listen to what he said. He's talking about the church. He calls them the Galileans. Like he's talking about the Christians, these Galileans. Who are they? Where'd they come from? Listen to what he says about them. When it came about that the poor were neglected and overlooked by our pagan priests, 
I think that these pious Galileans observed this fact and devoted themselves more to their philanthropy. So he's saying, the church were the people that somehow noticed that our pagan priests weren't taking care of the poor and the downtrodden and the outcast, and the church doubled down on their care of those outside of their circles. And then listen to what he says. This is the kicker. This is an infamous church history quote. Listen to what he says. They, he's talking about the Galileans, the Christians, support not only their poor, but ours as well. All men see that our people lack aid from us, but not from the Galileans. He's going, what is going on? This church, these Christians, these Galileans, they take care of our poor and their own poor. They're caring for people inside of their walls and outside of their walls. What is going on? And he's writing to his pagan priest to try to go like, hey, dude, keep up. Like the, the, the Galilean Christians are doing this better than us. They're adding beauty to the world. They're making the world a better place for people that don't even belong inside their circles. What kind of people are we talking about? The church history would tell you many, many, many times over that the early church was something that the world had never seen before and really hasn't seen since. This is like unique among uniqueness that like no other way of life, no other philosophy, no other religion, no other spirituality, no other philosophy has ever produced this kind of people, ever. Does any of that draw you in? Does any of that make you go, I, I, want, I want to be a part of something like that? Does any part of you want to help be this kind of community? Of course you do. Of course you do. Because we're all running around chasing it, trying to find this kind of community everywhere else. We all want to be a part of something that breaks down barriers, that, that settles the hostility, that draws people in and woos them. We want, to, we want to be a part of something that cares for insiders and outsiders alike. We all want to be a part of something that gives us a place to belong. So here's the question. How? How in the world did the early church become this way? What created this for them? What, what formed this in them? The Bible is very clear about this, that what made these people this way was not some dream of glorious humanitarianism. What made these people this way, what makes us this way, is the grace of the gospel of King Jesus. You have to encounter something, not just think about something. People are not just like this on their own. You have to actually be transformed into this. People need an encounter that changes them, that makes them into something that they would not be if left to themselves. Julian, that same emperor in the fourth century, he goes on to say in this letter, he proposes that his pagan priests imitate the Christian charity and imitate the Christian compassion and care for the poor. And he says, because we need a revival of paganism in the empire. So if we're going to do that, you've got to be more like them. So just, 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 just go do it. But the program failed. Because the polytheism of ancient Rome was not able to sustain the kind of self-sacrificial love and compassion that belonged to the church. It couldn't do it. It couldn't form it in them. It couldn't create it in them. It couldn't produce it in them. Julian's like 
let's go rah-rah speech to his pagan priest, like, go, just, just go do it. Isn't that, isn't, don't you see it and don't you want to be it? Just, just go do it. It's why political rallies and Instagram reels won't change you. It's why podcasts can't change you. You need something deeper. You have to be transformed into something. The early church was this way not because they were convinced of a way to find their best life now. The early church was this way because they encountered the grace of the gospel of King Jesus. And here's how we know that. See, if the church, we looked at this last week, if the church is to be a continuation of the acts of Jesus, that's what acts is all about, you are continuing to live in love like Jesus lived in love. You are continuing to be the presence of Jesus in the world. That means that all this beauty of what the early church was, all the ways that they were with and for each other, all the ways that they were breaking down barriers, all the way that they were for the outsiders, all those ways, all that that was was merely a continuation of what Jesus first did and a continuation of who Jesus first was. Meaning, do you know why the church was favorable, was kind and compassionate to outsiders? Because Jesus was first favorable and kind and compassionate to outsiders. Do you know why the church broke down cultural barriers? Because they learned from their Jesus that Jesus came to break down cosmic barriers known as sin. Nothing should keep people apart more than sin and holiness. And Jesus is saying, I came to destroy that wall of hostility. I came to destroy that cosmically so that you could do it with your cultures. Do you know why the church began to empty their pockets and empty themselves for the sake of those inside their walls and outside their walls? Do you know why they cared for people who were in need? Because Jesus emptied himself. Because Jesus gave himself away for them. He emptied his pockets. He emptied the treasure chests of heaven to come and save them, to come and give to the poor and the needy. Do you know why the church cared about people who thought way differently from them? Do you know why the church, the early church, cared for people who should have been and could have been their enemies from the outside? Because Jesus loved his enemies. So they're, they're experiencing, they experience this reality of Jesus and said, this is how we're gonna be in the world because this is how Jesus has been to us. See, at the center of Christianity is a man. And this man died to make all this true, to welcome the outsider, to break down the cosmic barrier of sin, to empty his pockets, to give himself away, to love his enemy. And he's got holes in his hands to prove it. The early church knew this. This is how our Jesus treated us. Surely this is how we should treat our world. Do you know that Jesus' grace knows no limits? The early church knew that, so they knew that their stance towards the world, towards loving and serving the world, should know no limits either. If people want to love the world like Jesus, they first have to be deeply loved by Jesus. You cannot sustain an attempt to love the world like Jesus loves if you have not first tasted and known that that is in fact how Jesus loves. So how do we encounter it? How do we get the grace of the gospel into us? How does it begin to seep in? How does it form us? How does it transform us? Well, this is where the sermon gets really boring. Maybe it's been boring already. I shouldn't assume as such. But here's where it gets more boring. Verse 42. 
And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers. Each one of those gets its own definite article because Luke wanted to make sure you knew they were separate things. This is what the early church was devoted to. The same church that was really unique in all of human history, the same church that was displaying beauty for the watching world, that loved the insider and the outsider, that broke down barriers, that was giving away as any had need, that same church was really devoted to some very mundane things. They were devoted to scripture. That's what it means, apostles' teaching, as in like the letters that the apostles wrote, which became our New Testament. They were devoted to the teaching, the doctrine of the faith. They were devoted to scripture. They were devoted to the fellowship. Like they were devoted to like corporately gathering. They were devoted to this thing of being with the communion of the saints. They were devoted to the sacraments. That's the breaking of bread, like communion. They were devoted to the sacred practices. And they were devoted to praying. Those four things are so boring, so mundane. And yet they have an extraordinary power to form and transform you. They're so ordinary that theologians call those four things the ordinary means of grace. <laughs> means meaning like the, the way in which, the way by which, the means by which something happens, the means of grace. And over time, these means of grace form us and transform us with really mundane regularity with really mundane regularity, these ordinary means of grace are how we are formed into the kind of people who display the beauty of Jesus to the world. My one caveat on this, or my one kind of bad news about this, is that I'm sorry, I wish this weren't true, but if you are going to be formed and transformed, if you and I, if we are going to grow into the kind of people who love the world like Jesus loves, that growth is really slow. That's why almost every metaphor for spiritual growth in the New Testament is agricultural. Things in agriculture, I'm, I'm told, don't grow quickly. I read recently, a pastor posted this article. He's far more spiritual than me because he practices gardening things, but he, 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 he came across this bamboo and he planted this bamboo in the ground. He was told about this bamboo, this specific kind of bamboo. He was told about this bamboo. Um, and so he kind of knew what to do with it. But literally, he planted the seed in the ground and then he watered it in the first season. Nothing happened. And then he was told, don't give up on it. Keep watering it, keep watering it, keep watering it. So much so that he's like, I don't even remember exactly where I planted it. Like, I can't, nothing is shooting out of the ground. And he was told for seven years, keep watering it. Every season, keep watering it. And after six and a half years, not, there was no sign of growth until finally in the seventh year, a little bit broke through. That's kind of the rate in which we grow and are changed. But guess what won't happen if, if, if you don't stay in tune with the If he hadn't been coming out and watering the soil, that bamboo would have never grown. The ordinary means of grace is what waters us. The ordinary means of grace is what nourishes us. It gives the nutrients and sometimes there will be seasons, there will be many seasons where you can't even tell if it's working. You won't even be able to tell if you're growing. Word, worship, sacrament, prayer. 
word, worship, sacrament, prayer. These things are not going to make you ever feel like much change is happening. But over time, these practices are forming you, watering you, nourishing you, transforming you. Because here's how growth works. Here's how transformation works. You and I as human beings, you and I as creatures of desire and habit, you and I, it's impossible to behold something continually and not become like it. You cannot gaze upon something over and over and over again, like at the brain wiring level, at the soul level, the way that you have been put together. You cannot have the thing that you are beholding, continually beholding. You cannot help it. The thing that you and I continually behold will form us to look like and be just like it. And the means of grace, here's what the means of grace do. Word, worship, sacraments, prayer. Here's what they do. They continually put you in front of something so that you and I are continually beholding it. And more specifically, they are continually putting before us someone. And you and I can't continually behold this someone and not become like him word, worship, sacrament, prayer, these are meant to have us behold Jesus in all of his beauty and mystery and splendor. All these sacraments, all these rhythms, all these habits, all these means of grace are meant to remind us of what our God has done for us in Jesus to then transform us into a people who love like he loves. Let's pray. Jesus, Sometimes the means of grace is not what we want. We want more. We want extraordinary means of grace. We want mountaintops. We want, we want to be able to look at something and point at something and say, my life forever changed on that day. And that may be possible. That may be true for some of us. But more likely than not, Jesus, you form and transform your people by watering the seeds that you've planted. Slowly over time, we slowly begin to look and love like Jesus. Would we be a place that is so okay with the mundane means of grace? Would we be a place and a people that is so drawn and captured by what we're beholding that we over time begin to look and love like Jesus? This neighborhood, that our communities where we live and work and play, that they would begin to be sad if we weren't there. We would have favor with all the people because we have brought the spirit and the heart and the love of Jesus with us. We, we, we love you, Jesus. We need you. Guide us now as we continue to sing. Form us and shape us, we pray in your name. Amen.